Competition, when it is judicious, when it is selective, and when it is circumscribed, can be very beneficial. But when competition becomes all-encompassing and becomes a purpose in and of itself, rather than a means to a more enlightened international system, it can actually be quite destructive. Middle powers are increasingly reaching the conclusion that the United States and China aren't credible stewards of the present order, let alone. Credible architects of some imagined, envisioned better post-pandemic order. I think you could argue that for the better part of three decades since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, U.S. foreign policy has been questing after a new orienting principle or construct.、Um, I'm not sold on the proposition that we are going to witness a, a catastrophic power transition. I think that far more likely is a kind of a tense, fluid cohabitation between the United States and China. G'day, welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Catherine Manstead, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Those comments you heard just now were from Ali Wine, and we will be back to hear more from him on all things great power competition and the Indo-Pacific right after this message. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news: ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free, or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today we are very fortunate to have a guest crossing the Pacific, Ali Wine, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Centre for Strategy and Security, and a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute. Ali is also currently writing a book on great power competition, and back in the day he was my TA in my international politics class at the Harvard Kennedy School. And just a reminder, due to the coronavirus pandemic, we are currently recording the podcast remotely and may not be able to bring you the audio quality you are accustomed to on the National Security Podcast. We appreciate your patience and we'll be back full time in the studio just as soon as we can. In the meantime, let's chat with Ali. Ali, it's great to have you on the program. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And can I start off with one question that's hooked me in your bio here? You're writing a book on great power competition.、Uh, what, in your view, is a great power, and what is great power competition? Is it something that is inevitable by the fact that we have great powers in this world that they will compete, or is it something、uh, that is a particular instance that we're seeing more and more of today that you've decided to zero in on? So, if you had asked me those, if you had asked me precisely those two questions six months ago or a year ago, I imagine that I would have rendered much more certain verdicts.、Uh, in part, just because I hadn't delved into, I, I hadn't done as much research for the book, and I had certain certain definitions in mind, certain formulations in mind, and、um, 
I'm not trying to elide your question, I, <laughs> I, I promise. But the more research that I've done, the more literature that I've I've surveyed on this topic, the more it seems to me, at least tentatively, that there is actually a lot of ambiguity. Or at, at a minimum, there is a lot of that the, these terms, great power and great power competition are actually quite capacious. And I'll, I'll start with just with great power competition. So the reason that I, I zeroed in on that particular uh, topic or construct was just um, just because in at least in Washington and I, I imagine in Beijing as well, but certainly in Washington, it seems to be uh, an animating construct, if not the animated construct, driving a lot of conversations and debates around American foreign policy. And given how polarized Washington is, given how much, and, and we hear about this a lot, the, the sort of daily lamentations of polarization in Washington, it's quite notable when any construct rises above that partisan fray. And for, I think you could argue that for the better part of three decades since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, U.S. foreign policy has been questing after a new orienting principle or construct. And when I saw the extent to which this notion of great power competition had taken hold on a bipartisan basis, I became quite interested. So if I had to summarize how I understand how most observers understand it, the simple interpretation is that great power competition focuses primarily on China and Russia, uh, and it focuses on the ways in which those uh, two formidable authoritarian powers are challenging U.S. national interests and undercutting the post-war order. And at first blush, that description seems to be uncontestable. You look at a resurgent China, which is uh, increasingly challenging America's military presence uh, in in your backyard, the Indo-Pacific. Uh, China obviously is making enormous uh, economic uh, and technological inroads on a global basis. Uh, it increasingly uh, chastises Western uh, ideological precepts and touts its own ideological virtues. And so you see, and especially in the past five months, uh, uh, you see that the pandemic has acted as an accelerant in terms of the deterioration of the relationship. And so you look at an increasingly multifaceted competition between the United States and China. Uh, with Russia, Russia doesn't necessarily have the economic or ma- overall material wherewithal that China does, but it nonetheless is quite disruptive and quite opportunistically disruptive in a, in a number of theaters. And so at first blush, if someone says great power competition refers to China and Russia's respective challenges, to U.S. national interests into the international system, that description seems indisputable. But the further you scrutinize the term, the more the more ambiguous it becomes. Uh, as a to me, anyhow, as a as an analytical construct, and accordingly as a prescriptive foundation for U.S. foreign policy. So, um, over what exactly are we competing? Uh, if you look at different definitions or understandings of great power competition, some observers frame it in a sort of a narrowly military sense, and that is to say. We need to maintain a great power peace and avoid another great power war. There are some individuals who interpret it as being principally economic and technological. Uh, There are other observers who believe that there is also a very profound ideological component. And so there's disagreement over the the dimensions of competition. Uh, If you then ask, where is the competition principally occurring? Uh, some observers, again, so if, if you think of a continuum of increasingly expansive interpretations, there are some observers who argue that it is principally salient in the Indo-Pacific, others that it is salient in the Indo-Pacific and in Eastern Europe. 
And then again, you get more expansive. So there are some observers who argue that it's it's salient in the Middle East, it's salient in sub-Saharan Africa, and then there are others who argue that it is indeed a veritably global great power competition. And then when you ask, just to give one more, to add one more layer of, of complication, if you ask uh, in what issues or over what issues is this contestation occurring, uh, you get you get an almost inexhaustible litany. So it's uh, emerging technologies, it's outer space, it's ideology, infrastructure, on and on and on. And so when you add or when you try to triangulate or when you when you when you layer on those different layers of interpretation, my concern is that there actually isn't among U.S. policymakers and analysts there isn't necessarily a there's a there's a growing sense of convergence that this is the that this is the right construct that should be animating our foreign policy. But I don't know that we're anywhere near a consensus among policymakers and observers as to what exactly the nature of the contestation is, how it will be financed, how the United States government will enlist the support of public opinion for a poorly specified, uh, arguably uh, indefinitely long competition, especially in a post-pandemic world. And so I can go on and on, but the, the, the point is that the more I delve into the construct, the more it seems to me that there is a something of a disjuncture between the degree of agreement that this is the right construct and the actual agreement on what it entails in practice. Ali, there's so much richness in that answer there and there are a number of things I want to come back to. The first place I want to take this, though, is thinking a little bit more about this notion of competition and you've talked about the descriptive value of the great power competition lens because we can observe in fact intensifying competition over um, a range of matters as you said geopolitical matters technological matters ideological matters even your framing of this problem as a kind of a, a a democracy on the one hand versus resurgent authoritarian regimes on the other hand is a particularly salient a salient frame at present. Mm-hmm. But one thing that interests me is, so we can look at this and say there is competition in fact. Is there a sense of strategic purpose behind competition between great powers? It's fashionable here in Australia, particularly in military and national security circles at the moment, to see and reconceptualise the relationships between states as something that can happen on a continuum, passing from cooperation through to competition, then contest, whatever that is, up to conflict. And it seems everyone is in pretty um, strong agreement that there is a lot of competition happening right now. But is there in some sense a a purpose or a strategy behind competition in it? an economic or a business term, we'd think competition is actually kind of good. Even within federated systems like Australia and the US, sometimes competition between subnational units like states can be good for the overall health of a democracy. In some sense, in the international community, uh, is competition not just a defining feature at present, but something that can also lead to a good outcome? Or if we were to reconstruct the world in a utopian sense, should we be trying to push the dial back down towards cooperation? I think the too often great power competition is invoked um, as though it were something of a grand strategic incantation, that if you invoke, if you invoke this phrase or if you say it a certain number of times that a, a coherent sense of purpose will will follow. Uh, great power competition, it seems to me, you can interpret in one of two ways. Uh, you can interpret, you can think of great power competition descriptively. Uh, that is to say that the United States 
principally vis-a-vis China and Russia, is engaged in an increasingly intense multifaceted competition uh, on this, that, or the other issue. So that's a descriptive statement. Um, You can also think of great power competition alternatively as an instrument. And that is to say, the United States needs to engage in great power competition, primarily vis-a-vis China and Russia, in order to accomplish strategic purposes, uh, A, B, and C. So you can think of great power competition in a descriptive sense. You can think of it as an instrument, but great power competition doesn't readily lend itself to a strategy. So that's, um, I'm, I'm really, really glad you asked me that question. And then as to the second part of your question, I think the competition, so comp- some level of competition, it, it would seem to me, is immutable and inherent in, in world affairs. And it, whether you look at the evolution of the international system, whether you look at the evolution of the human species, that competition of some form or another essentially dates back from time immemorial. And I think the competition can be useful, uh, provided that it is circumscribed and selective. Um, And so to give a very real and concrete example, uh, take infrastructure. Uh, There was a study put out by the Asian Development Bank estimating how much 45 countries under the ADB's remit would collectively need to invest between 2016 and 2030 um, in order to develop a sustainable infrastructure to, uh, to, uh, to engage in sustainable development, to mitigate climate change. And it was a staggering, staggering annual figure. And so the, the upshot of this very detailed and meticulous study was that there was an urgent need for infrastructure development in the Indo-Pacific. And of course, China proposed an Asian infrastructure investment bank. Um, The Obama administration lobbied quite aggressively against it, uh, only to find itself largely isolated. Um, China, of course, now uh, its flagship geoeconomic project is a Belt and Road Initiative. And there are a number of legitimate criticisms that one can level and that indeed have been leveled against the Asian infrastructure investment bank, but particularly against the the Belt and Road Initiative. And and the litany is familiar to, to us all. But those criticisms don't obviate the necessity, the urgent necessity of infrastructure. And so here's a potentially productive area of of competition. If the United States were to approach uh, countries across the vast uh, vast swaths of sub-Saharan Africa uh, and South Asia that have huge connectivity needs, huge infrastructure needs, and if it were to make an offer to them along the following lines, look, uh, we would like to offer you, if not as a, as a substitute for, but potentially as, a, as an alternative to or as a supplement to what China is offering, we would propose to offer you this type of infrastructure offering or this type of connectivity offering. That type of competition is healthy. It's healthy competition because it's additive. It's giving middle powers choice. So I think in areas of economic development, uh, technological development in certain, in certain sectors, I think the competition can actually be quite, quite, uh, quite productive and quite healthy. What I worry about is when competition becomes so all-encompassing and when competition becomes, rather than becoming a means to an end, it becomes an end in and of itself. And it becomes so all-encompassing that it precludes even self-evidently urgent cooperation. I had hoped that the specter of a potential pandemic, and now we know it to be an actual pandemic, I was hoping, or I had hoped that that specter would compel the United States and China to you could temporarily suspend their strategic rivalry. What I did not anticipate was that it would actually prove to be an accelerant of uh, their extant deterioration and that it would actually bring them to what now many observers are saying is the precipice of a new Cold War. Competition, when it is 
Judicious, when it is selective and when it is circumscribed, can be very beneficial. But when competition becomes all-encompassing and becomes a purpose in and of itself rather than a means to a more enlightened international system, it can actually be quite destructive. I think that's a great lens there because one of the the benefits, at least that whether either in fact or in perception of the so-called rules-based order, is that there are global institutions and norms and rules within which that healthy circumscribed competition can occur. Uh, I suppose what we're seeing at the moment is a step back, um, you know, whether we're talking about uh, increased Chinese uh, aggression or, on the other hand, their recent decision by the US to step away from the World Health Organization, uh, a sense that we're leaving some of those institutions behind, which has guided those competitive tensions into something productive. But what I do want to bring you to is what we're seeing with the pandemic. And you've written about this in some analysis you did for Wikistrat recently, I saw, uh, that in the past, despite a relatively rocky relationship at times, China and the US have uh, cooperated before. You mentioned the global financial crisis. Uh, previously with SARS and H1N1, there was health cooperation. And, of course, now we've seen a very marked difference with a crisis that is perhaps even more significant than all of those in terms of the economic and the human cost as well. What I wonder about mm-hmm. is you, in your um, analysis, you say that this is perhaps the result of getting to a zero trust situation in the relationship between the two countries. And that's a bit of a game theory explanation, I guess, where it would benefit both if they did cooperate, but there's just no trust there in order to set that up. What I wonder, though, is, is there also an alternative argument that it's not so much or just the lack of trust, but in some sense, we've got a game of geopolitical chicken happening here, where both countries perceive that it would be in their own interest to let the other make as many mistakes as possible and to bear a huge cost and that actually collaboration or cooperation to reduce some of the outcomes of the pandemic is not in their interest and that it would actually be better just to let the other fail uh, and, you know, just keep keep hitting rock bottom. Is there is there a, an argument that you see there that we're not just so much prohibited from from cooperation by lack of trust, but also by some supervening uh, kind of diabolical strategy uh, to to let the other fail dramatically. I think there's undeniably an element of that of that game of chicken that you mentioned, and it, it hadn't occurred to me uh, prior to your asking the question. I think that for some time, and, and this is why the pandemic is at least in the context of the the US-China relationship, you you could think of it as a hinge moment or a crucible moment. I think that for some time now, particularly in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, I think that China began to perceive more of a a favorable window of strategic opportunity for China to continue increasing its own uh, comprehensive national power and to do so in a relatively benign strategic environment. And I think what has happened in recent months that is so dangerous and makes this this game of chicken dynamic that much more dangerous is there's there's been a lot of speculation since the pandemic began who will come out better will the united states reputationally economically strategically and otherwise come out better or will china come out better um, and i think that this gets to your question i would actually frame the question somewhat differently and i would say it the the it's it's less it's more accurate to ask not 
which country will come out better, but which country will come out of the pandemic having incurred relatively less reputational damage. Mm. In other words, who will have suffered relative to the other, uh, relative to the other less? Because I think that, albeit for different reasons and in different ways, the United States and China are incurring enormous reputational damage. Returning to your question, I think that there's undoubtedly a, a game of, of chicken element going on. I think that the United States and China, even though they wouldn't say so publicly, I, I think that the United States and China internally are saying to themselves, look, we really are, we've lost a lot of credibility with the world. I think it's quite remarkable, actually, and I, I certainly wouldn't presume to uh, um, to speak for, for Australia, but at least in conversations with friends of mine from Australia, the sense that I get when I talk with friends of mine from the Indo-Pacific is that middle powers are increasingly reaching the conclusion that the United States and China aren't credible stewards of the present order, let alone credible architects of some uh, imagined, envisioned, better post-pandemic order. And so I think the United States and China are both concluding that they are rapidly losing a lot of credibility in the international system, albeit for different reasons. They are scrambling to maneuver vis-a-vis one another to see if they can profit off of the other one's woes, domestic, economic, health, and otherwise, to make themselves relatively look better. But my big takeaway is if the pandemic is at all indicative, and I, I fear that it is, um, the pandemic is uh, it, it sets a very ominous precedent in at least two ways. Number one, we've seen that the pandemic, far from shoring up the foundations of a an edifice of international cooperation that was already under grave duress from within and from without, the pandemic has actually amplified the kinds of nationalist and populist vectors that militate against that type of cooperation, number one. And number two, returning to the U.S.-China context or the G2 context, um, the the response of the respective responses of Washington and Beijing to this pandemic suggests that the two countries henceforth will use transnational crises that imperil all of humanity not as opportunities, even temporary, for shared leadership, but rather as further instruments of bilateral competition. And if the United States and China instinctively leverage transnational challenges and emergencies as instruments of strategic competition, and if they prove unable to or unwilling to subordinate bilateral frictions to global imperatives, then collective action is really at an impasse. Because as I said earlier, the United States and China, uh, they account for roughly between them 40% of the world economy. And so it's difficult to imagine a sustained architecture of global cooperation that doesn't have some level of buy-in from the world's two largest economies. And so you see now uh, middle powers, and I, I realize that that term middle powers, it's it's very capacious, and it may even sound pejorative. I but it was the, con- it was the, it was the I, I, cause of a debate between two successive foreign ministers in Australia, whether or not we were a middle power, which sounded kind of wonkish and something an international relations scholar might apply, or whether or not we were a top 20 economy country, which sounds a lot more um, dynamic <laughs> and exciting. But, yes, take the concept as right. something which is a really helpful right. lens when things always seem to focus on the two big fish in the pond. Right. And, and and so the question then becomes, and there are a lot of conversations now on whether it's issues of vaccine development, uh, preserving an open uh, trading order, mitigating climate change, so on and so forth. Um, many countries are now trying to find common cause and, and say to themselves, to what extent can we fashion uh, kind of on an ad hoc as needed basis on an issue basis, issue by issue basis, to what extent can we fashion multilateral instruments, multilateral institutions, multilateral fora that 
if not entirely inoculated from the influences of uh, U.S. unpredictability and Chinese belligerence, are at least somewhat uh, immunized from those those two twin uh, or those two reinforcing pernicious influences. But to what extent can we exercise agency amongst ourselves? My chief concern when I when I think about the U.S.-China relationship, there are of course uh, very real concerns and and growing concerns. I would say about the risk of uh, strategic inadvertence of of military miscalculation, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, a lot of the rhetoric coming out of Beijing uh, vis-a-vis Hong Kong and Taiwan is quite alarming. Uh, and the United States, uh, immediately upon withdrawing from the INF, announced its intention to uh, to active or to strengthen its missile presence in the Asia-Pacific. So there are growing risks of an armed confrontation, of course, in the Indo-Pacific. I still think that the probability of an out sort of out and out armed confrontation is low, but I do worry. And so I don't worry as much about an armed confrontation, though it's a very real possibility. Um, I'm not sold on the proposition that we are going to witness a a catastrophic power transition. I think that far more likely is a kind of a tense fluid cohabitation between the United States and China. But I do worry about the, I do worry about the potential for an indefinite situation in which the United States and China, by virtue of their strategic myopia, hold collective action hostage indefinitely. Uh, their continued inability to uh, to elevate global imperatives over bilateral friction. So it's it's not so much a hot war, it's not so much a power transition that worries me, but this a tense fluid cohabitation in which strategic myopia prevails indefinitely. That that I would say is if I had to distill down my concerns to I think that points line, that would be up to an interesting way of thinking about what COVID nineteen, the pandemic, is doing at the moment. We think of it as a potential accelerant of competition between China and the US, and we also ask ourselves, how is this going to change their relative power, as you pointed out, uh, vis-a-vis each other? I think there's also an interesting question, how it changes each of their relative power compared with the rest of the world. And I think you're right that in some sense this is also accelerating debates within middle powers or or however you want to call it, other other countries that were already existing but are perhaps (laughs) now being debated with increased um, urgency and intensity. This need to not just, you know, make a binary choice between China or the US but actually take some agency and look at different kinds of relationships and networks that can be used outside of the um, bipolar US-China construct. Um, Interestingly, just in the last um, couple of days, a group of former top bureaucrats in Australia have put out a paper which urges a range of measures for recovery and reconstruction after COVID-19. But a lot of those focus on new bilateral measures with other countries in the Indo-Pacific, as well as different evolving multilateral frameworks um, based on sometimes interests and also sometimes values. Um, And then, of course, you hear calls particularly out of Europe but around the place as well about how different democracies can unite and find common ground in in their system uh, of government to push forward and, and, and find new norms or new ways of doing business in the global world order that we now have. So, you know, I think I'm perhaps a little more optimistic than you were there about the ability of these different groupings to push the needle forward and perhaps as the US and China seem to abdicate responsibility and take a bit of a hit to their their relative power status as a consequence, 
Some of these smaller groups, minilateral, multilateral groups, might actually have a bit more space to play in um, as the world does become a little bit more anarchic and less guided by um, a responsible stakeholder um, of either flavour. But it looks like the time when we need to take a break. Uh, we'll be back just in a moment, though, to hear more with Ali Wine on the National Security Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. One thing I did wanted to bring you to is a beautiful phrase, Ali, that you said before um, when talking about China in March, this idea of narrative momentum. And you said they were riding a narrative high. I want to ask you and drill down a little bit on the the work that you think that narrative and ideology and ideas have in world order and in and in I guess relative assessments of power. When we talk about power and influence, we often think about hard military power, we think about economics, we think about diplomatic networks, but increasingly it seems that narrative, which may or may not be a subset of soft power, I'm not sure, is something that a lot of people are quite interested in um, for two reasons. One, it seems to be quite a focus of the Chinese government, um, but also, as you mentioned, when we have this digital world where people are able to, ordinary citizens are able to engage in debates about global politics and, of course, people um, are directly affected by these global geopolitical battles. You mentioned before, um, in quite stark terms, the consequences of a lack of collaboration between the US and China has led, in some respects, to some pretty horrific human uh, consequences and, and likely a greatly increased death toll as a result of that kind of elite power battle. So what role does narrative play here in, in terms of, of power? Is narrative as well when we're assessing it? I mean, it's not something like a military power balance you can chalk up how many munitions or how much technology someone has. Narrative is a lot more fluid um, and that's why I really liked your concept of narrative momentum because it also implies that maybe the rate of decay of whatever uh, advantage you have in the narrative world uh, might be a little bit quicker than other forms of power. It, it fluctuates. So how do you think about that when you're assessing um, great power relations and, and competition and power between states? It's critically important. It's And I should say just as, as a quick note before before getting to narrative, I, I think that your earlier point is is absolutely right that 
there is the quite substantial body of evidence that smaller and medium-sized powers are, by virtue of necessity, uh, exercising greater autonomy and agency individually and in partnership on a range of issues. And and I think the one tangible example, or, or one concrete example, rather, is the, the fate of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I, I certainly thought that when the United States announced its intention to withdraw from negotiations over the TPP, that the overall negotiations would collapse. But we saw that the 11 remaining negotiating countries, they pressed on and they, they signed their own agreement. It's a very concrete example of countries pressing on uh, with or without the United States. And I, I think that there are other examples of that phenomenon that one could adduce. Um, but, but to your question about narrative, it's crucially important. And at an intuitive level, I think it, it almost certainly plays uh, an essential role. And I, I wrote an article uh, recently in which I argued uh, in which I argued that while the United States and China are both likely to emerge from this pandemic having incurred enormous reputational damage, the United States is likely to incur is likely to have incurred greater relative damage because of the pre-existing narrative or narratives. And the, I think one of the core pre-existing narratives was that in times of global duress, uh, the United States, for whatever criticisms we we on the outside, whatever criticisms we may have, we look to the United States for leadership in times of crisis. We look to it for leadership. Other, most other countries don't have that expectation of of China. I think that other countries will welcome Chinese assistance and will welcome Chinese medical equipment, but there isn't that ex there isn't that pre existing expectation that China will lead in times of global crisis. There is that expectation of the United States, and therefore, when the United States is seen as having abdicated, the relative reputational damage is far greater. Uh, and so I, I have in front of me, and I, I wanted to just to read this headline uh, during our conversation. It's an article that, that, that gained a lot of traction. It's called Sadness and Disbelief from a World Missing American Leadership. The paragraph right underneath, it says, the coronavirus pandemic is shaking bedrock assumptions about U.S. exceptionalism. This is perhaps the first global crisis in more than a century where no one is even looking for Washington to lead. And so one narrative that existed before the pandemic was that in times of global duress, we look to the United States for, for leadership. The other narrative is that, that the United States, uh, when this crisis broached its shores, that the United States would respond in a more, would respond in a more confident and adequate fashion. And it is very jarring for countries across the world to see the world's foremost power within a few weeks of the viruses having broached its shores, proved unable to provide medical equipment to its frontline responders. And I think that, again, those twin narratives that the United States is a country that furnishes collective action or catalyzes collective action in moments of duress, I think that narrative has taken a great hit. The, the, the narrative that the United States is capable of self-renewal uh, in times of crisis, is able to respond to domestic crises in a competent and, and reasonably nonpartisan fashion. That narrative has taken a hit. And the reason, again, that narratives matter, uh, and that in this case, I think they're both a blessing and a burden, China didn't face those burdens as much, but narratives, uh, especially in an age of social media, narratives play a very important role in shaping the calculus of leaders. Perceptions matter, narratives matter. And um, you know, when I think about what makes America exceptional, what makes it singular in the annals of human history, of course, it, it is exceptional by virtue of its military preponderance. It is exceptional by virtue of its economic preponderance. But I think that it's really some of the intangibles that, that to me at least, make America exceptional. And I, I'm often reminded of a quote by 
by, by the late French philosopher Raymond Aron, that in the 20th century, the strength of a great power is diminished if it ceases mm. to serve an idea. And I always come back to that quote, because when I think about America, you can think about America as a nation state. You can think about it as a great power. You can think about it as a polity. And you can also think about it, and I think that every country, to some extent, believes itself in this way. But I think that you have to think about America as well as an idea. Um, Ali, I don't have a quote from a French philosopher to throw back at you, but one thing that's been simmering away in my more simple mind as you've been talking is as you, one of the concepts you just said that, that I love is this idea of um, America perhaps having more to lose in the narrative stakes because it does have this such a rich mm-hmm. idea. And I'm recalling um, some Mills Brother lyrics, uh, you always hurt the one you love the most. And I think mm. for the rest of the world, because of this yeah. idea of American exceptionalism, because of the stories of American superheroes that we have fed from Hollywood, because of the, the sense and the overhang of, of America's leadership during World War II and the post-World War II era, the surprising lack of leadership now from the US hurts, I think, more because of the soft power attraction that the US holds for the rest of the world than perhaps uh, China conforming to expectations uh, if perhaps at the same time diminishing those expectations even further. So it's an interesting um, and invidious position to be in to have a degree of of, of soft power and and attractiveness of the idea of your nation um, and not to be able to hold up to that. The lyrics that you cite, they remind me of of an article that Tom Malinowski wrote for The Atlantic. This was shortly after he had stepped down from the Obama administration, uh, but it was before he became a member of Congress. And he wrote an article for The Atlantic. I'm, I'm forgetting, the, forgetting the, the exact headline of the article, but he, he talked about uh, sort of disappointment and bewilderment that uh, many friends and partners felt in the United States as they surveyed America's domestic dysfunction, its insular inward turn, its domestic challenges, its seeming abdication of leadership abroad with this America first notion. And he said that whenever I would travel, and and that is to say, whenever he would travel as a representative of the Obama administration, he said, whenever I would travel and wherever I would travel, um, individuals would, would come up to me and they would decry American hypocrisy. They would decry American imperialism. They would decry the lack of American leadership in this, that, and the other instance. And he said that it was painful to hear those accusations some, in some cases, he agreed with the substance of the accusations. In other cases, he departed from the substance of the accusations. But nonetheless, he said that those statements were, were painful to hear. But, and this is the point that, that he makes, which I think dovetails perfectly with the point that you were making. He said that he actually often came away from those conversations feeling, feeling a sense of inspiration and a sense of hope. And the reason is you express disappointment in a country when you have an initial expectation. And he said that the ferocity of denunciations, the frequency of denunciations that he heard suggested to him that across the world, there was an underlying expectation of and desire for a strong American leadership role in the world, not uh, an overly militarized role, certainly not, not a unilateral role, not a, a, a role in which the United States harbored pretensions to hegemony, but a role in which the United States exercised power with others, mobilized coalitions, galvanized collective action. But he said that when China commits human rights abuses, when Russia commits human rights abuses, when China 
fails to galvanize collective action or when Russia fails to galvanize collective action. He said that for the most part, most most other countries don't, they may, they may criticize China and Russia, but they don't sound those notes of disappointment because there wasn't that initial expectation that China and Russia would rise to the occasion. And so what now Representative Malinowski was saying in that article, and I, what I think you were suggesting in your intervention just now was that implicit in the bewilderment at America's seeming exit from the international stage, its retreat from international foreign institutions, its insular turn. I think that that disappointment, that bewilderment that we see so pervasively uh, in, in Europe, in Asia, it reflects an underlying desire, America come back. Uh, not America come back in a unilateral sense, not America come back and to try to exercise hegemony, but America, come back. We need you by virtue of your power. We need you as an organizer. We need you as a convener. America, come back. I think one of the biggest questions that I have is to what extent will our friends, our, our partners, and our allies continue taking a chance on us? I, I think that there is a growing weariness with American unpredictability. There's a growing weariness with the gap between America's professed commitment to the Indo-Pacific and its actual operational commitment to the region. So I think that there is a growing weariness. Um, I think there's a growing impatience. And so the question is, will, depending on how our own internal politics evolve, depending on how our own foreign policy evolves, uh, will our friends, our partners, our, and our allies objectively conclude that this period has been an aberration in American politics um, and or uh, uh, give us the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, whether or not this is aberrant, we'll treat it as an aberrant period because we really want you back. But again, it's an open question. And and the reason is that when the gap between America's aggregate national power and that of China in particular was very pronounced, uh, I think that other countries were perhaps more willing and more patient with our uh, with our own oscillations at home and abroad. But now that the economic and technical technological writing is 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 more on the wall, so to speak. And as the gap in overall power narrows, and as China is able to leverage its economic and technological inroads to make strategic inroads, I think that that patience is diminishing. Well, Ali, um, I think one of the key drivers there will be the next and the emerging generation of leaders in America who push this debate and seeing the energy and the passion uh, that uh, folks like you and also indeed across the states at the moment with a huge amount of, of goodwill and, and energy to strive for a better America, I still hold out some um, optimism for America uh, that this period that we're in of instability and uncertainty and abdicated leadership might just be that, a, a slice as opposed to the future. But as you foreshadowed before, we are at the end of our time. And that means that there is one final okay. question that I'll ask you as I ask all of the um, people who come on to sure. the NatSec pod. Um, given I've just put the future of America on your shoulders as well, <laughs> I think this this question is, is quite relevant. And it is, we ask you know, if there is something uh, in your life that has been particularly influential in getting you to to the career focus that you have now and the way that you approach your work. Um, it could be a book, an author, it could be a particular moment, interaction, even a song or a movie, something that's had some, that's shaped personally the 
work that you do and the way that you see the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I always, um, I, I'm so glad you asked that question because uh, there's, there's nothing more that I, I really, I enjoy, you know, more than, than, you know, spotlighting those who have influenced me. And, and I do want to mention uh, two individuals in particular, uh, and they are, they're giants, of course, and they both have been, they both have played indispensable roles in my, uh, in my life intellectually, professionally, and personally. And I, and I do want to give them a shout out here. Uh, Joe Nye and, and Graham Allison. I've had the privilege of knowing uh, Professor Nye since 2004. Uh, I met him uh, during a gap year that I took between high school and college. Um, uh, 9-11 happened in my junior year of high school. Uh, up until my junior year of high school, I didn't have any particular interest in world affairs or even really American politics. I was, and I, I say this with, with chagrin, and I'm quite embarrassed in retrospect, but I was I was quite a parochial in my outlook, and 9/11, uh, as for many others uh, of our generation, it was a, it was a wake up call, and it, it prompted me to escape my insularity and to try and, and search about for articles and essays and books that could help me understand uh, America's role in a post 9/11 world. And then next year, my senior year of high school, of course, we had a very intense national debate over whether or not to intervene in, in Iraq, and so. Uh, 9-11 and the attendant recognition of my insularity and then the, the ensuing debate over whether or not to intervene in uh, Iraq compelled me to uh, write a letter to the then dean of admissions at MIT and ask if uh, she would be receptive to my taking a year off. She, um, she readily um, uh, accepted and encouraged me. And so during that year off, I came across a book by uh, then Dean then Nye, uh, The Paradox of American Power. It was a book that he published in 2002. And it managed to be, and this is a hallmark of Professor Nye's writing, is that it was written in very accessible prose such that even someone such as myself with very very little, if any, training in, in international politics could at least absorb the big ideas, uh, but he didn't dumb down the concepts. And I was so taken with the book that I wrote him an email, uh, and I, I don't have a copy of the email with me. It was from a different email account that no longer exists. I do remember it was a somewhat overzealous email. I said, Dear D. Nye, I've just finished your book. I, I I loved it and this and that. It was it was very overzealous, uh, and I remember after hitting the send button and looking at the email, I said, "Gosh, you know, it probably comes across as overly exuberant." Uh, but I assured myself, I said, "Look, uh, he's the dean of the Kennedy School. He's a titan of uh, of international uh, relations scholars." My email is probably I'm I'm a I'm a no name random high school graduate. My email is not even going to make it to a spam folder. Uh, it turns out that it did actually <laughs> make it to his inbox, and Dean and I responded, and he said, "Ali." You know, thank you very much for your kind words about the book. If you ever find yourself in Cambridge, let me know and, and we can talk further. And I, I booked a flight right away and I, I met with uh, Dean Nine early 2004. And uh, he has been um, just the kind of mentor and an influence that uh, each of us dreams of having. Um, and so I, I've had the honor and privilege of knowing him for, uh, for roughly 16 years. Um, and then Professor Allison also took a chance on me. Um, during my junior year of college, so this was in uh, 2007, I was trying to find a junior summer internship, uh, no luck. And one of my political science professors emailed me and said, Ali, I have a friend who is looking for someone to do a little bit of research for him on an article that he's working on. Would you be interested? So I interned for Professor Allison my junior year of college. And then after graduating, after finishing up my first job, I wrote to Professor Allison just to let him know what I was up to. And he said, well, Ali, what are you doing when you when you wrap up your job? Would you like to work for me full time? 
Um, he gave me through that job as a research assistant for to him at the Belfast Center. He gave me my most decisively important professional experience. He taught me to think more critically, more rigorously. He taught me to interrogate my assumptions. Um, he held me to the same intellectual and professional standards that he held himself to. He challenged me to be a better thinker, to be a better writer. He challenged me to revisit my assumptions. And um, and he's invested in me ever since. So Professor Nye and, and Professor Allison, I, I want to say thank you um, for, uh, for the role that you've played in my life uh, intellectually, professionally, and personally. Uh, I am forever uh, in your debt and, and just eternally grateful. So thank you both so much. Ali, this is one of your, apart from your intellectual contribution to debates, one of the striking features of you is your generosity. And for listeners who don't follow Ali on Twitter, at Ali underscore wine, um, you should, because not just because his feed is kind of a, a constant education, but also because of the generosity with which you spotlight other people's work and um, provide interesting tidbits of information to really help your fellow scholars along. So thank you for that. Um, And thank you also for being an incredibly generous participant on the National Security Podcast with us today. Um, Some really rich answers there, which are still buzzing around in my mind. Thank you so much, Catherine. It was really an honour and a privilege. And a final big thanks to Ali Wine for joining us on the National Security Podcast today. You, of course, can join us as well. Find us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or at Natsec Pod, or join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod, or use the ye olde personal touch and drop us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. Be sure, of course, to hit the subscribe button and give us a ranking on whatever platform you pod with and we'll speak to you very soon on our next episode of the National Security Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.